This is the Power Breakfast Show podcast series. Podcast series. Remember, like, share, and subscribe. Power 102 Digital. Everybody right now caught in the jostle for space in the race trying to keep up with the pace by space round cram everybody is yeah, jamming 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 for a better life a better way of living in the meantime simple things we forgetting like how to say good morning morning neighbor so much for joining us on the second hour of the Power Breakfast Show on Power 102 Digital. Yeah. I got major, we got news brief coming up at 8 o'clock. All Kennedy, Sean Clay, Auto Services. Quick look at what's happening traffic-wise going through from Roselac um, to Grove Park to South Oropus. You got some traffic there this morning. Riverland Road in Coober, heavy. Claxton Bay, the southern main road. In fact, Riverland Road has got a, uh, uh, an accident. Yeah, it's got an accident close to the point, Lisa's. Uh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Close to the southern main road. That's right after. S- yeah. All right. Um, but it's quite heavy. And quickly heading northbound. Nothing ready to tell you about usual spots by Valencia Stretch. Trin City Eastern Main Road is equally heavy. Going to like we go towards Pazre, St. Joseph, and then. Um, Mount Hope towards the Quasi got some traffic there as well. All right, nothing really out of Maraba. Quick traffic update for you. Hope that helped you out in one way or the other. All right, so 20 minutes after the hour at seven o'clock. Um, let's get the results of our morning poll while we wait for our guests to join us. Our poll this morning was. Um, do you think protests, including burning of debris and marches, are effective in addressing issues in Trinidad and Tobago? We had 24 people voting on the poll this morning. Of the 24 people, 13 said yes, they do think they work, and 11 said no, wow. they don't. Exactly. I'm not surprised because people don't feel they have any other source of recourse. The, the authority don't seem to listen to to the small man they do what they do and they don't really care sometimes so they seem not to care let me address let me um, revise that they seem not to care it's like how we're talking for months about the, the state of the roads and the state of port of spain the state of arima and no no redress at all so people feel well you talk to the mp no redress you talk to the prime minister talk no redress and those those day-to-day life 
situations that affect you are not addressed in a timely manner. So you just feel, well, you know what, let me just give trouble. Let me go and burn something in the room. I'm not endorsing it by any means. But you feel that that is your only, the only voice you have. So I understand it. Not surprised one bit. Yeah. All right. Now, All what right. it says to me is that the, the, the people are getting more and more Recording fed up. Recording in progress. The people are what? Sorry, Paul? Getting more and more fed up. Just fed up of, of the inaction. Yeah. All right. Well, let's bring our guest, Paul. Let's introduce our guest. That's why you can't introduce him again. Do no work this morning. Good morning, um, Valmiki Ajun, economist. Thank you for joining us this morning, Valmiki. You had on your camera just now, but you take it off. Why? Well, at the time, I didn't realize you all were using your cameras, but now that I see that you are, I I will happily oblige and put my... How how does that sound like a buff so? Good. Buff him. Buff him. Oh, that sounds like, sound like almost midway buffish. Buff him. I think, I, think I think the volume on your computer a little too loud. Ah, and again, next yeah, buff. Oh, sorry. I, yeah, I keep <laughs> telling him that. Is that better, Dr. Ajun? Yeah, audio technician now, too, and an economist. What? He's a video specialist, an audio technician, and an economist. Well, Mickey, let me, let me WhatsApp you. What to buff him on again? I have a it's, list. It's Dr. Ajun, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. yes, yes, but you can yeah. call, feel free to call me, Val, Mickey. Uh, before I get buff again, I'll call you, Dr. Ajuna, and cool myself. <laughs> <laughs> you won't get buff from me for that one, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> just buff me three times already, just now. <laughs> anyway, thank you for joining us this morning. We appreciate you taking your time to be with us in the Power Breakfast Show. Next to you, then, in the shot the standards and pause rating is one of the rating agencies, the recognized rating agencies that I realize that Trinidad and Tobago recognizes and, and give us some context about, for because we always presume that all the audience understands and about the, the rating agencies and what they do and how they do it and how often they do it. Sure. Now, a credit rating, but, uh, which is done, of course, by these rating agencies, it it, it is not meant to give an indication or a direct indication of the state of our economy. Okay, so let me just dispel that myth um, one time. Um, they do look at, at the, our state of our economy, yes, in order to come up with this rating, but it's not meant to be an, uh, an indicator of what the economy uh, is looking like, these circumstances, etc. at this point. All it really is, it's meant to show our debt repayment capabilities, especially our debt repayment capabilities to our external creditors, the people that we owe outside of Trinidad and Tobago. Now, at this point, um, according to Standard & Poor's, we are at, in the, in the what you call the investment grade region. The investment grade region typically means that they view us, the, and, and they representing the international community views Trinidad and Tobago as being credible or less vulnerable, less risky for being able to meet our international debt, to be able to repay our international debt. Now, keep in mind that we are in the very last notch, the very lowest part of the investment grade uh, region. I mean, I I think we should um, focus on the fact that we are still in the investment grade region according to Standard & Poor's. So we're still viewed as very credible out there, but it, we're, we're not in the best position because we are in the very last last notch. 
Um, now, you hear many times the um, politicians, ministers, etc., talk about the outlook. Um, in the credit rating, it comes with the actual rating itself. In our case, according to S&P, it's triple B minus, and there's an outlook. In our case, yeah, that outlook changed from negative to stable. Now, let me just go through what the outlook is. The outlook tells us the likely direction of the next rating, where Standard & Poor's believes our next rating is going to be. So if you have a negative outlook in one year, that means S&P is essentially telling us that in the next ratings exercise, chances are if we don't get our act together and, and if our revenue streams don't improve, if our growth trajectory doesn't improve, etc., chances are they will downgrade us. If there's a stable outlook, it means that in the next ratings exercise, they don't anticipate that they would change the actual rating. And if there's a positive outlook, it means that in the next exercise, they believe they can upgrade us. Now, with this rating, we can breathe a sigh of relief, not just because the outlook changed from negative to stable, but more importantly, we actually avoided being downgraded this year. And of course, if we were downgraded, that would have placed us in the speculative or the junk status. Now, if you're in the junk status, the speculative grade status, then that tells the global community that we have a very high credit risk and we, uh, our abilities to pay our debt to the international uh, community would be viewed as risky. But we were able to prevent this because the outlook now has moved from negative to stable. Last year, when they gave us that negative rating, we thought that chances are, if our, if our economic position, our revenue streams, et cetera, um, did not actually improve, then it would, it would then, then more than likely this year, S&P would have downgraded us. But this year, what because of the rainfall energy What gains, would have been the factors responsible for the upgrade, in your opinion, from, from right. negative to stable? Right. So, so what, um, what would have happened, of course, is that our revenue streams, from the, especially from the, from the energy sector, would have improved. In fact, um, the, the, the Prime Minister recently indicated earlier last week that um, we are earning additional streams of revenues out of the energy sector of about $8.14 billion. Now, as I said, we were able to, to, to um, avoid this, this um, downgrade and move from an outlook of negative to stable because of this surge in our revenue earnings. But it's integral to remember that this wasn't because of any sound economic strategy by the authorities. It's, it's really because of an unfortunate war which would have caused oil, gas, ammonia prices to, to, to escalate in the international market. However, these higher revenues signal to S&P that we are in a better position to cover our debt burdens because we have vastly improved fiscal accounts. So what the stable outlook is telling us is that there's a good chance next year the rating is not going to change when they do their rating exercise. But once our fiscal performance continues to be encouraging, once we can accelerate our pace um, for a balanced budget, once we have uh, continued uh, the streams of higher export revenues, and of course, uh, GDP growth, positive growth, for the first time since 2016, then the outlook can in fact be, sorry, the, the, the outlook can in fact be changed to positive in 2023, which means that in 2024, we could actually be upgraded from triple B minus to triple B. But of course, this again hinges on energy prices continuing in our favor, increased energy production, and, 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 but also as equally as important, the state presenting, the authorities presenting a strategy that's going to enhance our, our um, uh, non-energy production levels 
and also stronger exports and financial performance, uh, more so from the state enterprises, so that the state is actually less burdened from having to provide state entities with financial support. Um, I remember in one part of the SMP report, they did mention the contingent liabilities factor. Um, and I think going forward, we have to be very, very careful of that particular issue, the amount of monies that the state is accountable for should state enterprises, um, should their financial performance be, be uh, very discouraging and the state has to step in and give them a, a, a bailout. Um, these, are, these are some of the, the key issues that, that we need to address carefully in order for us to really get that upgrade from S&P in 2024. So it does in fact connect in a really real way to your economic performance. Yes, as I said, it's one of the key factors that they use to come up with the rating, but it's not meant to be an indicator of our economic reality. So for example, it's not taking into account the massive cost of living and the cost of doing business that exists right now in the country. All it takes into, what it mainly takes into account are our revenue streams from a macroeconomic perspective um, so that we, we can in turn use these, these additional um, these additional finances to be able to pay off our long-term debts. Now, what's very interesting is that one of the reasons that Standard & Poor's has kept us in this investment-grade region for years is due to our healthy heritage and stabilization fund balance and our healthy foreign exchange uh, reserves in the central bank. So despite, despite us having, um, having gone through seven years of a recession, um, we did not, they did not downgrade us to the extent that where we would have been in the John Great status. So our economic performance at that point in time would have been subpar, but because of, of, of other factors like our HSF balance and Forex balance, et cetera, um, they took that into account because it limits our external financing risks to some extent. So in their view, and that is their point of view, let me just reiterate that, um, if we cannot meet our external debt repayment obligations, they believe that we can always go into the HSF and our forex reserves to help to repay these loans. So that is part of the reason why they believe that our debt, debt repayment capacity is still, is still a bit favorable. However, pragmatically speaking, go into the HSF to be able to repay your loans. That should be avoided at all costs because these are funds that are there uh, to, to, if we go into it, it's to foster new, it really ought to be to foster new investment opportunities in the country uh, to build productive capacity and, and new revenue earnings uh, and generate new new revenue earning mechanisms. But keep in mind, however, that Moody's have placed us in the speculative grade region since 2017. But given, again, our improved revenues and growth projection this year, is is very likely that they may change our outlook from stable to positive. And that, in turn, would improve our chances of an upgrade from them in, in 2020. You said, earlier, you, you said earlier on that the upgrade was largely in part and please correct me if i'm misinterpreting you to the fact that we have these increased revenues due to the the, the of course the increased energy commodity prices because of the war in with ukraine and russia russia yeah. and ukraine right. right um but isn't it also in part how do you reconcile it it being also not suggesting or not adding to that prudent management because if you continued if the if the state continued well the government continue to increase borrowings and not manage the fiscal profile the debt profile no matter how much money we made it would it it wouldn't it have impacted us in the reverse isn't it a combination of two which i guess is what the finance minister is saying well remember 
as, as you made that point about about the debt profile, and 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 we have to give credit to the fact that um, our debt to GDP ratio, net debt to GDP ratio, actually, uh, the latest data it shows that it fell by about one percent um, in June of this year. Now, if you're making higher revenue earnings, especially to the extent that we are right now, what reason do you have to go to the international markets or even your local market to borrow? You don't. Um, not at this stage and in, in any case. And and um, we would want to well, is that fair? If, if, you're, if you're running a deficit budget, which means you have to find money to, to you're not making as much as you're spending, how so do you, you, how do you, how, how do you reconcile that for us? You're the economy. Right. So so you are making a deficit budget. Now, we, at, at the same time, we have to wait to see when the minister presents his particular budget in this in this upcoming, um, whether it's in, in, in the latter part or the earlier part of September, remains to be seen. The prime minister did say as an earlier budget. Um, and, it, and no indication has been as to whether they're, they're likely to balance it. And for all intents and purposes, it may still very well be the deficit region. Um, we, what we have to pay attention to is that the deficit is more than likely going to be a lot smaller than what we envision. And that in itself is quite a positive thing. But why is the deficit likely to be quite smaller? Um, and I'm not ruling out the fact that um, they, 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 they have maintained certain policies. Like, for example, the central bank did not um, increase their interest rates at this particular point in time, which, in my opinion, is a positive thing because that would have stymied more economic growth um, than what we deserved. So, so that is one aspect of it. But the, the bulk, the, the, the overall bulk of the reason as to why we had this change in the outlook from negative to positive, sorry, from negative to stable, is the fact that we're earning higher revenues. The fact that we're earning higher revenues stems from not any real sort of economic strategy to earn these revenues, but or any new strategies rather to earn these revenues, but it's really because of the high international oil and gas prices and ammonia prices, et cetera, prices of hydrocarbons in general, which is stemming out of a very unfortunate war at this point in time. It's not to say that um, there are some economic policies that are not working out in our favor, but to the extent that these policies are working in, uh, in our favor, whether they are or not, as opined by SNP, that did not really uh, account for their for the larger part then of their decision to change our outlook. It is primarily because they believe our debt repayment capabilities have improved and the reason, I mean, think about it. The, the reason your debt repayment capabilities would have improved is because you're getting more money. You make more so money. You're getting more yeah. money. Yeah, yeah we're more getting money. more money from these higher revenues. But then how stable is that given you? Know, the, the U.S. Are, are pushing, trying to push down their gas prices. We don't know if the war will continue. Russia and the pipeline is still in the last couple of days. Uh, all have a, 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 an impact on the geopolitics of energy prices anyway. So, and we so we, ha- and we have no control. Those are external factors. So how, how, how should we or how can we project for the future in terms of where our rating is and our ability to repay and also service our debts moving forward, given the instability of that situation? Yeah, certainly. And we, in fact, the Prime Minister has been making that point on, on several occasions, as a matter of fact, that we are price takers. We don't decide what the oil and gas prices are. What if um, a, a few weeks from now, the oil and price or oil and gas prices would, would just start to drop quite significantly if there were, especially if there's a resolution to the war and, and, and um, pipelines, oil and gas start, start to flow from, from the pipelines from both Ukraine and Russia. Um, yeah, that, that, that is certainly something that we need to consider, which is why we can't continue to be uh, in this particular position where we keep subjecting ourselves to these um, 
to these very volatile hydrocarbon prices, these high and volatile hydro hydrocarbon prices. As I would have mentioned earlier, on any upgrade that we, any chance of an upgrade that we were to have, it, it apart from hinging on the energy prices continuing in our favor. And I do, do believe that they're going to likely to be um, in, in the vicinity of, of um, within 90 to $100 a barrel, maybe even more for the next few months, which again goes well in our favor. But, but next year we need to, um, and, and remember it's not just about the Russia-Ukraine war. Remember even before the war, energy prices were in fact starting to climb and they were starting to climb because there was a massive recovery in the global economy, um, a surge in international investments and international spending as well, international travel, which would have pushed up the, the, the price of oil and gas. But what also hinges on is us being able to present a strategy where we can convince them, them being the credit ratings agency, that we can enhance our non-energy uh, sector investments and thereby lower our risk to volatile hydrocarbon prices, with stronger exports coming out not just of the energy sector, but also from the non-energy sector. It also hinges on, if we were to look at energy, not just the pricing aspect, but also the production aspect. S&P did mention in their report, in all fairness, that, that um, the, the, the upgrade was more so due to, or they alluded to, it was more so due to the higher international prices, and but 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 we have to take into account that there was a disappointing production levels. If we were, if we are soon in the coming years able to, to ramp up our production levels, especially within the hydrocarbon sector, then regardless of whether prices stay in the vicinity where they are right now or they drop a bit, um, an an increase in your production levels can certainly mean that your your um, revenue streams can continue to be maintained, which in turn means your debt repayment capacity can continue to be very high in the favor of the credit rating agency, so they might be more inclined to upgrade us. But do you but think that's I likely? Think, but but do you think that's likely though that that we will be able to ramp up our hydrocarbon production? And not not to the extent as to which we ought to. But the point I was going to make. No, why? Why not? Why? Why we have this challenge in doing that? Because why we're we making more money, you know, because of the the buoyant uh, commodity prices, we could be making much more if we fixed our production issues. Yeah, well, we certainly can. Now, remember one: there's the issue that um, and I, I was one of those who who believe that we never should have shut down that refinery at that point in time when we did, um, uh, especially in the latter part of of 2020, the height of the pandemic. Remember, oil, oil, oil prices will, will they fell actually in negative region. Um, but then, when you look at at in recent past where oil prices were at and, and where fuel prices on the international market um, where they went up to, that meant that had we at the time had a refinery, even though um, the, the the cost to, at that particular point in time, let me reiterate, the cost of operating that refinery would have been um, unprofitable, but temporarily unprofitable had we taken advantage of those very low somewhat negative oil prices at that time been able to purchase oil from the international market and store it at a very very cheap price then when the prices started to go up we would have been able to resell that oil at a much higher price and make a profit from it and because we would have been storing some oil over time had, if we had a refinery, we would have been able to refine that oil, not, not, not just necessarily meet our overall local demand, but also supply um, some, some other countries in the region at, and at, of course, at, at a higher international market price. You see, what we fail to do over time is utilize hedging strategies in the, in the international oil and gas market, simple strategies 
where you can buy low, store, and sell at a higher price when the prices um, move higher up, or where you can enter into contractual arrangements with um, uh, by, by, for example, um, engaging in purchasing futures contracts, etc. when prices are low. So you buy oil in the international market when prices are low, and then you resell it at a point in time when the, 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 the price were to go up, where you resell, resell it at a higher uh, pre-arranged price. These are things that we have not really thought carefully about. So if we have, we really ought to be implementing strategies like this. So you start earning revenues, not, not just because of your production capacity or, or, or your production realities, you start earning revenues by essentially playing the market. Simple things like buying low and selling high. Well, normal comments. Uh, do you think our present, the present presentation of our debt profile is accurate? Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I have no, no issues with, well, I shouldn't say I have no issues. I have, um, there's only one particular issue. Our debt profile, it, it, while, while the, um, the authorities, the CSO and the central bank, they, they do, um, accurately measure what our debt repayment obligations are in terms of our, our external debt, in terms of our, um, the, the debt that we owe to local, to, to local financial institutions as well. Remember, much of our debt comes from issuing bonds um, in our treasury bonds then in the international market and, of course, in the local market. That is, of course, all of it, whatever we owe in that regard, is captured by our debt profile together with the contingent liabilities aspect. Contingent liabilities being that portion of the debt of, of our state enterprises, which the government is accountable for. So if the state entity cannot repay that debt, the state then comes in and, is, and, and has to take um, responsibility then for that debt. All of that is captured in our net debt profile. But then you have outstanding liabilities then, for example, to, to contractors, to, to, to other uh, private agencies, etc., that is taking the, the, the government's years to pay, um, sometimes even decades to pay in, 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 in some uh, minor instances. That, of course, is not captured in our debt profile. But your debts are your, are your liabilities. These form parts of our liabilities and it's not adequately captured in there. So one has to really wonder if SP were to take that into account in their um in, in their assessment of our debt repayment repayment capabilities, would our ratings necessarily be but, uh, but is, it, is it standard practice to consider domestic and external debt in that profile assessment? Well, right. So so that profile assessment looks at as I indicated earlier, not what we owe to local um, to local agencies. And so, for example, if I were a contractor, right, um, you know, in a, in, in, in a different reality than in a different dimension, if I were um, a contractor and the government owes me $50 million um, because of work I would have done for them five years ago, and I have not received that money as yet, that is debt that they owe to me, but that, debt, that, that aspect of the debt is not actually accounted for in our overall net public sector debt. So if you were to take that into account as part of our net public sector debt, then it would be a much higher debt figure. So in reality, when these credit agencies look at our debt profile, they don't take that aspect of our liabilities uh, into account. Now, why, why they don't take that into why they don't take that into account though? Well, the, these um, credit rating agencies they have a particular template that that they tend to stick to when they come up with our our actual ratings. So so uh, according to their their guidance, they look at the institutional assessment um, for, for the for the economy. So so for example, they look at at um, 
the evolving checks then between um, the institutional and like for example statistical information and they they have spoken about this several uh, ratings before in, and, and I remember also in last year's rating they spoke about this our ability to provide timely statistical information and, and as I see quite favorably the CSO has responded to this because they now have significantly upgraded their, their data provisions to, to, to the wider public. Um, so there's the institutional assessment. They look at, of course, the economic assessment, which is where they consider things like um, like our, our GDP growth, et cetera. Um, they look at the external assessment. That's where they look at, for example, our our vol our um, the, the, our risks then to external factors and also our our capabilities, sorry, our, our reserves like the Heritage and Stabilization Fund, the Foreign Exchange Reserves, etc. Um, our Sovereign Wealth Fund then. Um, they look at our, our they, they do a fiscal assessment of us in terms of our revenue streams um, and our ability to be able to repay that debt, our debt burden from, from those revenue streams. They also do a monetary assessment as well, looking at um, the, the extent to which the central bank intervenes in the foreign exchange market, looking at the, at, at, at the amount of foreign exchange controls that we may have, for example, at, at our interest rates, et cetera. Um, that, is, that is the general gist of what they, the factors then that they take into account in order to come up with this, this, this rating. And again, the rating to show our debt repayment capabilities, um, that, especially for our long-term debt that the country has, I have two, I have two, I have two questions for me. One, the non-energy part of it, because the non-energy revenue, um, export revenue, which is always, um, I suppose, is concerning at times, and sometimes we do a little bit better. What's your assessment of our non-energy performance? And two, what is your current assessment of our foreign exchange situation, which has been pretty challenging over the last couple of years? How, how, what's your assessment today and to be regard to that? Okay, so what, what we found, um, and, and, and in fact, I, I really don't think that we're giving that this, this particular sector um, much credit because at the height of the pandemic last year, they did in fact step up to help us to maintain um, some inflows in our foreign exchange reserve, in our foreign exchange earnings coming out of internet, of, out of exports. Um, and that would be the, the um, food processing subsector in the overall manufacturing sector. Last year, in spite of all the pitfalls of the pandemic, our local food processors, in fact, took advantage of the fact that there was a surge in international spending and they, they would have ramped up their production to increase their sales on the international market. And they would have done this, of course, with some support from the Exim Bank. This caused the food processing sector to, to, to grow by a whopping 23% from quarter one of last year to quarter four. Now, while the scale of their operations is, is nowhere near adequate to meet all the demands of the local market, it does show that, that there are still entities that are willing to put in the work despite any harsh circumstances that, that they might be faced with. So I think that to say that the energy sector, yes, while it still is definitely so more than now than ever, is, is our real bread and butter, there are particular sectors and, and subsectors within the overall uh, in economy that, that are taking it upon themselves, despite whatever limitations that they face, to boost their production levels and, 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 and earn significantly more export revenues that they would have contributed towards um, relative to the, to the last few years. And in fact, you have to commend them for this because 
in the manufacturing sector, much of the raw materials and the equipment that they get are imported, that they utilize. Or in fact, all the equipment that they utilize are imported. And in, in the non-food processing sector, much of the raw materials that they, that they utilize are imported primarily from Asia. We know what the, the, the extent of the shipping costs are from Asia, not just the, the cost of the shipping, but also the cost, um, that how it's been exacerbated recently because of the high cost of fuel. Um, but uh, uh, despite these, these limitations, many manufacturers have actually risen to the occasion and bolstered their production levels, especially more so last year, in an attempt to, to, um, to increase or to take advantage then of the increase in, in international consumption levels. And, and, and they've done so quite successfully and brought in additional revenue streams from uh, um, uh, additional revenue streams, which would have assisted our earnings of foreign exchange. Which brings me to your second question, where our foreign exchange reserves are at at this particular point in time. Now, we have about seven months of, of import cover with respect to our, our foreign our forex reserves. Um, if you were to look at the, at the actual data, uh, our import, sorry, our import cover is not, not uh, seven months, it's about eight months rather of, of, of import cover. It's about 6.8 in the vicinity, about 6.7, 6.8 billion, billion US dollars uh, in, in reserves. Now, now, while that takes us to a, a drastic drop then from where we were back in 2014, 2015 levels, even 2016, um, and, and again, we have to remember that, that, that there is a part of that, those foreign exchange that was acquired, not necessarily because of increased exports, um, but rather because of increased debt. Because of course, when you're borrowing the international markets um, and, and you issue your bonds on the international markets, when, when investors purchase those bonds, they purchase it using US dollars. That of course accounts for part of our forex reserves. Nonetheless, 8.8 months, or rather, um, on, to be accurate, 8.2 months of import cover is, is still, in my opinion, a very positive thing, especially relative to where other CARICOM countries or the Caribbean countries are at at this point in time. And um, I, I think we need to count our blessings in that regard. However, I think that the, the dissemination of foreign, of foreign reserves ought to be, um, it, I think it can be improved. One can't help but, 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 but consider the fact that part of the reason why we have such healthy reserves um, is, is especially because a lot of the financial institutions, the commercial banks in particular, it's very difficult to access Forex from them um, for the last few years, even not just as consumers, as you want to travel, etc., but but as businesses. You see that over time, um, several banks would have brought down the, the amount, the limits on credit cards then that you can spend, the US dollar limits then on your credit cards that you can spend as a small business. So these practices, while on the one hand, have helped us, have contributed now, it's not the only factor, of course, there are more important factors, but it has contributed to us staying at a particular range then of, of reserves. But on the other hand, it has unfortunately stymied business opportunities in the country. How can you, what do you think about uh, our investment profile vis-a-vis -vis Guyana's upward swing in the energy market in the last two years? How does it position us uh, in terms of the country, in, in, in our in terms of our prospects, is it is it good for us? Is it that we we we've recently appointed an ambassador in Conrad Enil to I guess to cement our collaborations? How how do you reconcile Guyana's movement with our position in our prospects? Well, remember, um, first of all, Guyana is from from and, and I mean I'm speaking at, from. At, 
I'm, I'm commenting on your on, on your question, not just as an economist, but also as a director of a business chamber in the country. Um, so in speaking to a lot of these business organizations, many of them are trying to make inroads in the Guyanese economy. Um, now, on, on the one hand, there's much, um, they, they perceive then that, that there's much, much money to be made there, given, given how heated the Guyanese economy is at this, at this point in time. Their foreign direct investment is, is, is off the walls at this particular stage, I would say. However, one has to consider that in terms of the ease of doing business, the business environment, how, how quickly and, 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 um, and, and reasonably secure you can, you can get things done in Guyana, uh, we, we still have the advantage We've, uh, far more over them at this particular stage. Um, however, that being said, it, 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 it is in our best interest, especially from a food security perspective, um, and, and not just food security, but food production, even food exports perspective, for, for us to strengthen our collaborations uh, with them. So, for example, we import most, if not all our wheat, rather, from, from the U.S. And, and, and sometimes from Canada. And um, recently, we signed an MOU with Guyana. Remember, um, Guyana, the, the, the leaders in Guyana would have indicated some time ago that one of their priorities is that they wanted to help establish food security, not just for Guyana, but for the entire region. Guyana would have indicated intentions to, to engage in things like wheat farming. You know, if lo our local uh, farmers could invest in and even partner with the Guyanese economy to grow, to, to be part of this initiative, to, to start growing their own wheat, then we can in turn not only supply our local market with this wheat, but over time we can together with them, be, be net exporters um, of wheat as well, not necessarily, if not to the, to the rest of the world, but at least to the rest of the, uh, of the region as well. We, the, the, this MOU is a very favorable opportunity to help to help us to lower our dependence on food imports and our, our exposure then to very volatile food prices. Um, because as, as you well know, our local farmers, um, they, they, they are a subject sometimes, many times, a very disadvantaged position given the extent to which we tend to import uh, our food. Our, our food. Now, foods, our that local are foods that are heavily subsidized are that. Yeah, correct. And, and more of our local farmers should be encouraged to invest in Guyana through this MOU if we were to take it forward. Uh, they should be encouraged to, the MOU that rather should, should help to encourage the, the acquisition of, of, of more arable land. Um, because there's much land space in Guyana, especially for producing crops that require um, large acreages, things like corn, citrus, bananas, um, animal farming as well. In fact, what our Ministry of Agriculture could consider, they can help to facilitate much of this by expanding the grants and the benefits that they have to local farmers that, that, that wish to set up operations in Guyana, while at the same time helping, to, helping them by partnering with the Guyanese government in order to provide concessions then to our local farmers for, for acquiring land uh, for farming purposes and for even moving equipment across from Trinidad and Tobago uh, into Guyana. Um, so that is and that is just one out of many, many avenues that we can try to, to, to partner with them in order to boost our revenue earnings profile. Now, just, just on a side note, as you mentioned, our investment profile um, uh, some, some, some time ago, one of the things that just bring it back to the S&P rating here, one of the things uh, or the benefits then of, of, of this particular ratings exercise, given the fact that we managed to, to, to avoid going or being downgraded and going into, into that speculative uh, grade region, is the fact that many institutional investors, not just in Trinidad and Tobago, but across the world, those investors 
a lot of them, they, they are, are restricted then in terms of where they can invest their monies in. So their company profile, their company policy might be, you can only invest in treasury bonds that, that, that are issued from countries that are in this investment grade region. In other words, you can only invest in, invest in investment grade bonds. The fact that S&P still has us in the investment grade region is actually very good for our capital market because institutional investors, these large companies, will, because of their company policy, continue to invest in, in, in our treasury bonds. And, and that, that, of course, um, is, is a good thing, given that if you were to drop into the speculative grade region, you could find a, 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 a big sell-off then of our treasury bonds in the local and the international market. And a sell-off of our bonds is going to push the prices of our bonds lower. We're going to have to start increasing our interest rates to be able to provide more returns on these bonds in an attempt to pull back some of these investors. So that is just another another advantage of remaining in this in this um, investment grade region. What, 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 are the, what are the prospects you think for the budget uh, for twenty for fiscal 2022, 2023? Took the um, out as, of my mouth. Um, be, and more so in light that there's going there's always a political element to it, of course, um, but it will be a political element because of the local government elections that would be due close to the end of the year. Um, so what what kind of budget do you think the Minister of Finance is gonna come with? Yeah, well I think um one, we have eight we have an additional eight point one four billion dollars in revenue. So it's very interesting, uh, and I really anticipate this this particular budget more so given the fact that we have higher revenues. And it's very curious to see how going forward these monies can be spent. Now keep will will be spent, sorry. Now keep in mind that these monies that the Prime Minister would have spoken of is really supposed to be geared towards covering our expenses for the fiscal year that we're currently in, 2021-2022. Now, going forward, if they anticipate that energy prices are likely to remain within uh, within a particular range in a very high vicinity, then what I do anticipate, first of all, especially more so that it is an, an elections year, um, uh, a local government elections year, I, I, I do believe that they, they could provide more support then um, to, the, to, to, to those households that are most vulnerable, uh, vulnerable to, 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 the, to the very high cost of living. So, for example, don't be surprised if you find the state having to temporarily increase the social safety net via a more coverage for the food card program, more coverage for the school feeding program, temporary cash transfers, maybe even, uh, you never know, a utility bill discount here and there. Um, they did remove that on several um, items last year because of the high cost of food. Uh, and I also, so I would actually encourage at least temporarily given the high cost of living, just considering broadening the zero rated items list and maybe even looking at what Barbados and Guyana is doing, which is temporarily adjusting import duties paid. Because right now, in addition to earning higher revenues from the energy sector, the revenues from, from import duties and VAT, et cetera, um, that the state is earning has in fact gone up because of course, the cost of shipping has gone up and the cost of, of, of the items that we purchase from our international suppliers have increased. So that means your cost insurance and freight value that you pay duties on VAT on is higher, which in turn suggests that the revenues that governments are earning, that the government is earning from, from international trade is, is in fact more. So there can be some wiggle room for the state, I think, at this stage to temporarily adjust the import duties by 
via looking at um, what Guyana and Barbados has done, which is to utilize the old shipping rates as opposed to the new rates, at least temporarily. Some legislation might have to be passed to allow that, but that, that can't be done, of course, in Parliament. Um, but at the same time, in doing all these things, they have to be very careful that it does not further significantly disadvantage the fiscal space because we have much more breathing room come in, into the economy now given these higher revenues. You don't want to take too much away from that. No. Do you think uh, that we, construction yeah. materials should also be subject to some sort of tax relief because construction materials have also gone up dramatically? Yes, yeah, certainly. It's the cost in, of construction. Yeah, so because the... The, because of, primarily because of the cost of construction materials, uh, the, the the prices of houses has in fact increased by about nine percent in the five in, in the last two years. Prices within that that the housing sector inflation and housing inflation has gone up by nine percent over the last two years, which is which is quite a substantial amount. But again, it's likely because of the the higher cost of construction materials. So so while they can consider yes. Re, um, reducing some of the, the, the taxes that are levied on, on these materials. One has to remember that 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 importing these materials, they, because we import them, there is a certain element of these higher costs that we just can't escape from because of the higher price of importing them, because of the higher shipping costs as well in importing these items. So we can't avoid the high cost of shipping. The government can't, can't very well go out there and say, okay, I'm going to subsidize shipping costs for you. That's just not feasible. So that is one aspect that they, they're not really going to be able to address. And of course, they can't tell the supplier what prices they want um, and how to and, and tell the supplier that they want lower prices. So because of those two key elements, the price of construction materials are likely to re, are likely to be in the high vicinity, but the government can certainly help to at least alleviate partially the situation. By, by looking at any sort of, of, of tax reductions on these materials, more so because when we think about construction activities, construction activities, they tend to account, especially within the, states, the state sector, for a large part of revenue generation, a large part of the, the productive, building more productive capacity in the economy, which in turn tends to account for more revenue generation going forward. So I certainly think that, that, that they need to encourage more of that going forward. Three, three quick points from you as we close uh, that you think are critical for budget 2022-2023 from the finance minister that you'd like to see. One, smart agriculture. We have a tendency for decades we have been focusing on the traditional means of agriculture, but now given what especially what other countries have started doing, I think we, we, we need to start looking at, um, at utilizing smart technology, which which is available, the technology is available, things like using 5G, drones, smart collars for your livestock, sensors for fields, et cetera, that can actually help you to maximize the production per acreage. So for example, if you utilize these, if you, with, without utilizing it, we might get about 10,000 tomatoes in one acre of land. But if you utilize these smart technology, what it can actually help you do is to, for example, um, one drone could help you to up to, to, can help you to, to, to apply uh, in, in insecticides then um, for about in less than a day one drone can can spray insecticides for about over 20 the equivalent farmlands the equivalent of about 20 football fields that that is actually the, the levels of productivity and that could also help with, with pretty elastic number two correct yeah correct um in fact when you look at smart sensors smart sensors can help to avoid wastage and tell the farmer exactly which part of his fields need more fertilizer 
needs less irrigation or more irrigation, which parts of the fields need more nutrients, where it needs more pesticides, etc. So, and that can in turn help to boost up his output, his output production in a in a shorter space of time. When you use smart colors for your for your livestock, you're able to track when they're going to give birth in a better manner. You're able to track when they're going to give milk, etc. That has been done extensively. And when the teeth and them number two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, as you made the point earlier, yeah. year last week, a very huge problem that yeah. has limited our agricultural progress in years. It can certainly help to reduce these things. We're, we're running short on time. Number two. Yeah, number two. What I spoke of earlier, the um. The, the assistance to help those that are vulnerable in, in society, um, those, especially the poor households that would have been affected by these price increases. So things like uh, assistance via the food cart program. But more importantly, what I would like to see is that we really consider uh, 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 utilizing the, the policy that Guyana and Barbados have decided to utilize, which is where you, you use the former shipping rates that we would have been paying in the pre-pandemic era to reduce that that overall CIF cost insurance and freight value that they charge taxes and duties on. If you do that, then that is that is going to help to, to limit the extent of price increases uh, in, in, in the country. So I think that is a very important factor going forward. Um, it's also going to be very interesting to see where the wage negotiations are going to end up. Um, I, I, for one, believe that we need to give workers more uh, higher wages because um, they have been, especially public service, working in the, uh, on the same salary since 2013. And, and let's be fair, prices have gone up by well over 13%, 31% since then, especially uh, food prices rather have gone up by well over 30% since then. And food is the commodity. I'm sure you'll agree that we utilize the most of um, in, in our basket of goods that we consume. So it, I think it's necessary that they strike the ideal compromise going forward. And they can talk about that a bit in the budget um, going forward so that workers can get a, a much deserved increase in wages, but measures all ought to also uh, be put in place to assist the, the labor force in, 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 in bumping up their productivity levels, which is, which is where the ease of doing business comes into play. We really need to start paying careful attention to improving the business environment, reducing the, the, product, the, the bureaucracy and the high degrees of regulations in certain areas that inhibit business activity and even foreign direct investment uh, going forward. Um, one last point, foreign direct investment. I don't think we are giving enough attention to FDIs outside of the energy sector. When, when the pandemic came or crept on upon us like a thief in the night, we, our, our um, cost of med- our, our bill then for medication would have went through the roof, not just for us only, but, but internationally. Those countries that were manufacturing their own pharmaceuticals well, well, they were in a much more beneficial position, countries like the UK, et cetera, because they're manufacturing it right there. In fact, at that point in time, they would have, have cut off the exports of pharmaceuticals to other countries. We need to start bringing in pharmaceutical manufacturers here in Trinidad and Tobago because it's an area we don't really have the expertise in. But if you get the foreign investment into the country, then in about 10 within the space of one decade, we can then take over the operations and become producers of pharmaceuticals pharmaceuticals on our own and we are well poised at the base of the Caribbean region to be able to supply pharmaceuticals in the rest of the region and in the South American subcontinent but it all starts with getting that know-how getting the investment through the foreign investors. Well, Mickey, Dr. Arjun, thank you for being with us we appreciate your time and your contribution this morning thanks a lot. Absolutely.
Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. All right. This is the Power Breakfast Show podcast series. Podcast series. Remember, like, share, and subscribe. Power 102 Digital.